Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A couple of hours after the UK decided to grant emergency approval to Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine this week, I called up Heidi Larson. When there's big news in the vaccine world, Heidi's job is to open up a listening post monitor social media conversations, look to see how science is affecting everyday life. I wanted to know how the rest of the world reacted when they got the same push notification I had. Well, I think that on the one hand, it's, you know, people are enthusiastic and, oh, finally it's here. And then on the other end is like, told you it was too fast. This is moving too quickly. (laughs) Heidi runs an organization called the Vaccine Confidence Project. Fast to politicians and scientists is a good thing. Fast to the public means, hmm, something's something's fishy here. Heidi has studied all the reasons people have for rejecting vaccines. And they've had their reasons since the very beginning, when the smallpox vaccine was rolled out at the beginning of the 19th century. There were a lot of anxieties that it's not natural, it's against God's plan. There are incredible illustrations of people turning into cows in the archives of the Wellcome Trust here. And So was there literally a rumor that you could turn into a cow by getting a vaccine? Oh yeah, that was a, a perception um, because it was derived from cows. Earlier this year, Heidi noticed a similar rumor about one of the coronavirus vaccines. It had been designed using chimpanzee virus, and Russian news agencies began implying it might turn people into apes. There was even a photo of Prime Minister Boris Johnson walking around outside Downing Street with a photoshopped chimp face. And I just kind of smiled in a way because I thought, my goodness, 200 years later, it's the same image. You could put it right next to the ones of people turning into cows 200 years ago. Even though these rumors sound silly, this is the moment when they could become deadly serious. Because a long-awaited vaccine is actually about to be available. Over the last weeks and months, data has shown trust in a theoretical vaccine has been pretty fluid. It goes up as the virus surges, and the trust wanes along with the infection rate. Heidi says the way the scientific community handles the next few weeks is going to be critical. It's hard for a lot of people in the medical and scientific community to understand why people don't understand. (laughs) And why would they resist something that is good for them? Today on the show, there are so many things that could stand in the way of a successful vaccine rollout. But what if the thing that really held us up was ourselves? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us.
Heidi Larson is an anthropologist by training. She's interested in the way we talk about vaccines because that conversation, it often involves a culture clash, though we might not think about it that way. She wants to step in between the scientists and the public and explain each to the other. Though Heidi's such a careful speaker that she would use a different term here. She never talks about the public as a monolith. Instead, she refers to publics as in more than one, a collection of communities who've got to make decisions about their health together. Can we talk about the language we should use in this interview? Like, you're, I've noticed you're really precise in how you speak about vaccines and the way people feel about them. Like, you dislike phrases like herd immunity and anti-vaxxers. Can you explain why? Because I think it polarizes. And I think on the one hand, I appreciate that people want more, <laughs> more of a soundbite world, but that also really risks polarizing, stigmatizing, grouping people in ways that are just not what real life is about. Have you seen that in your work where people say, people just brush me off as part of this bigger group? Absolutely. I mean, I've talked to parents, parents have communicated, you know, sent me piles of information where they feel so, as one called it, demonized. You know, I don't feel like I can even ask a question anymore, and I'm called some flat earther. Um, I'm a concerned mother, and, you know, am I not allowed to even ask questions anymore? And on the other side of it, you know, I've I've seen files of things that these that have been collected by some of these parents that is the language in in the media by by politicians and by public figures and even some scientists calling calling them you know all kinds of things you know idiots crazies don't care about their kids of course they care about their kids they love their children they just have a very different notion of what is right um they wouldn't do that if they didn't love their kids but which is another thing that you know some of the medical community just can't get do you think some physicians have brushed off people who have concerns about vaccines as that's just emotional i think it's a mix of things i don't think they say it's just emotional i think they might say that's not fact I think that they're also uptight because they're going, they can feel questions coming their way that they may not be able to answer. They're not experts in everything and publics are really getting into ingredients in processes and all kinds of things. We're kind of stuck in this conversation of different languages. I wonder if you see some of these mistakes around language repeating themselves now with the coronavirus? Like you talked a little bit about how speed is something that can really set people off, people who've had questions about vaccines. And I'm thinking about the United States. You know, our vaccine effort was called Operation Warp Speed. I wonder if you hear that and you just think, oh no. Yeah, well, that certainly wasn't helpful. 
But it wasn't just Operation Warp Speed. It was a number of politicians wanting to get there first or companies wanting to get there first. Um, and it's the frame of the race. Yeah, exactly. This whole notion of a race hasn't been helpful because, you know, people feel like, oh, wait a minute, you know, we're not stupid. We know that vaccines can take eight, 10, 15 years to be developed. What's with this eight months now? You've tracked the rollout of so many vaccines internationally. And I'm wondering if we can talk about what that experience has taught you and like how you'd apply it in this moment where we're just beginning to see the release of a vaccine. And like what would a good rollout look like in terms of who gets the vaccine, how much it costs? What has your experience taught you? My experience has taught me as we should have started preparing, engaging with publics probably in July. And so you think we're late? Yeah, I think not too late because they're barely out the door and they'll come in in trickles, <laughs> the vaccines. But we shouldn't wait until people are in line for vaccines. That's not the point to be started listening to questions. Now is the time. And we don't have answers for everything, but the important thing is to engage with people, to know that you care about their concerns, to know that you want to hear what their questions are, because that in itself is important. And if we don't start engaging now, they're going to go somewhere else for their information. And they are. And you know what the the we're in hyper risky times right now because i mean i'm sure you know the phrase a little information is a dangerous thing you know uncertainty is super fertile ground for rumors pieces of information waiting to be verified and you know people are filling the space they have enough information to start questioning and we can see with every piece of news the social media spikes with a lot of conversation, a lot of looking for information, and a lot of them are not finding what they're looking for. Because it doesn't exist or because we're not making it available enough? Yeah. I mean, some of it actually doesn't exist, but that's not stopping a lot of those who are trying to seed seeds of doubt and questioning. They're not they're pretty bold in offering answers, which are not necessarily scientific or factful. But instead, we're kind of waiting for the correct answer. But in the meanwhile, we need to be there with people. We tell them about the process we're in. Say, we don't have that piece of information yet, but this is what we're doing in the meanwhile. Heidi says it's also important to meet those publics where they're at. Right now, that's online. She's especially excited about some efforts to get doctors on TikTok to take people's questions, fill the information vacuum. This is an a initiative called Team Halo, and it is a lot of young scientists who are involved in the COVID trials around the world. Um, they're on TikTok hmm. and doing short, you know, hey, I'm, you know, whoever, and this is my job, and this is what I do, and I'm happy to answer your questions. They're really human. 
What do I think about the efficacy results from the Moderna, Pfizer, and Sputnik vaccines? Well, over 90% is really exciting. What it shows is that all these vaccines are showing some level of efficacy and really higher levels than we could have imagined against this particular novel coronavirus. And I think we need a lot more efforts like that, which humanizes, which, you know, makes the, the lab less sterile, <laughs> uh, less remote. You know, I think for some health authorities and and scientists, they're kind of shy of going into the whole social media space because it feels pretty messy and emotional, which it is, but that's where the public lives. So we need to establish as many opportunities as we can for people to ask questions and have somebody that answers them responsibly. Chatbots, numbers to call, set up hotlines, set up people in communities that can answer basic questions, that are there to listen, that's the best way to go. We need a listening administration that sends a message, we care about what you think. Heidi's approach has been called a kind of soft diplomacy, and that's intentional. When she looks at the history, she sees a push and pull, actions and reactions, when scientists push vaccines too hard, the public pushes back. It's not the first time we've had questioning. I mean, there have been since since vaccines landed on the planet in the 1800s. I mean, the first anti-vaccine league was in the United Kingdom in 1850s. And that was the very first vaccine. That was the smallpox vaccine. But that was particularly provoked by a mandate that, that people had to take it. So it was actually called the Anti-Compulsory Vaccine League. Heidi thinks the same thing could happen today. Do you think the vaccine should be mandatory? I don't think vaccines should be mandatory in general and for any vaccines that are, you know, other vaccines where there are mandates. It's usually, I mean virtually always about the setting and not so much about the specific vaccine in itself. It's if you're working in a hospital, which is a high risk setting for spreading to other people or being at risk. If you're a child going to school where if you have one of the childhood diseases, you're putting other people at risk. Um, if you're going on a pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, which is, you know, millions of people gathering, you have to take, it's at least three different vaccines um, because you will put other people at risk in a situation of that could spread very quickly. And I don't think in the case of COVID, we're in a position to be mandated because one, we don't have enough of them yet. And you can't mandate something that you're not ready to deliver equitably. So I, I think we're far from a mandate when it comes to COVID. And I also think mandating something in such a situation right now where there's such um, antibodies to anything more government controlled, we I think publics are really at their at their wits end with the amount of you know externally imposed controls. And even those who, you know, even when you you know it's it's meant to be a good thing, it's there's a limit. <laughs> and I think right now, one more thing that's mandated by government will not be well tolerated. Well, and you brought up how a mandate can backfire on you. 
because in the past, when vaccines have been mandated, it caused people to say, we're against that. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We'll be back after a break. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, when the New York Times talked to scientists to ask, like, how Joe Biden should be preparing to take the helm with this pandemic, your name came up where people said, you know, she would be a good person for Joe Biden to be talking to, to have on the coronavirus task force. And it made me wonder how you think about how we're heading in to this presidency and this switch here at the United here in the United States. Like there's been some criticism that maybe that coronavirus task force needs to include people who might reach communities that the Democratic Party and Joe Biden may have trouble reaching. I wonder how you think about that, whether you think that's something that politicians need to be thinking about moving forward, building trust by talking to these people as you do, who they might not otherwise talk to. I do think it does need the kind of approach of listening in communities that wouldn't normally be listened to. Vaccines, you know, in my most hopeful days could be um, a kind of soft diplomacy with at, at a local level. Let's put down our guns, verbal or otherwise, and just start to have conversations again because it's, you know, I saw an interesting article in Le Monde, the French newspaper, and they were saying, you know, there are a few things you can't talk about at the dinner table. And one of them is politics. The other thing is vaccines. Hmm. And I understand what those tables can be like. But if we can get people changing the tune around vaccines, it might be an entry point. And we have a huge opportunity with COVID. It could totally change the landscape. You talk a lot about the importance of engaging with people that you think you might disagree with. And I'm hoping you can tell me a story of a time you did that. Like I I was reading about you, about this one time last year where a woman who runs a network of parents who question the efficacy of vaccines got in touch with you and wanted to talk. And you took the meeting And I just wonder how that conversation went, why she wanted to speak with you, and how it ended up going. Well, it's interesting. She had heard me on the radio, and she actually uh, sent me a message saying, I just heard you on the BBC morning show, and I just want to thank you for not blaming parents. Hmm. And... You know, she said, we're often put, you know, when there's lower vaccine rates, it's always fingers are pointed at the parents. And thank you for not blaming parents. And then she said, you know, I'd really like to come and talk to you if it's possible. You seem like someone who would be open to talking to a parent. So I said, sure. What she 
said to me was, one thing I wanted to come tell you is that there's a lot of my peers in this group who are not interested in vaccinating and have their views on it. But there are a number of them that actually are open. But I came to tell you, you should tell your colleagues and the medical people you deal with that if they would only speak nicely, they might get more people to vaccinate. Hmm. You know, and I loved the fact that it was someone who wasn't really a fan of vaccines coming to suggest ways that we could get more people to vaccinate. It's a pretty simple request. Simple, but, you know, pretty powerful to come from her. And I thought pretty courageous. Heidi Larson, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks. <laughs> Heidi Larson runs the Vaccine Confidence Project. She's the author of Stuck, How Vaccine Rumors Start and Why They Don't Go Away. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, Davis Land, and Mary Wilson. We get help from Franny Kelly. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. Tomorrow in the feed, stay tuned. Our Friday show will be here. What next? TBD with Lizzie O'Leary. I am Mary Harris. I will catch you back here on Monday. <laughs>